Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will be taking a closer look at the main sources this podcast is based on. It's an important discussion to have, and I would have started with it, except I wanted to wait until we had covered enough material so it could really make sense. And finally, in order to fully prepare ourselves for the next stage, we will end by reflecting on the tension between politics and religion within the Caliphate during the 30 or so foundational years under its four rightly guided caliphs. With so much to get to, we had better get started with episode 17, The End of an Era. Now that we've covered several hours of early Arab history, I bet you have a pretty solid idea of what sort of material to expect. Well, for the next few episodes you may not notice much of a change, but after a bit the source material will begin to seem very unfamiliar, and that is what this episode is for. All the impressions you have made about Arab history so far should be restricted to the pre-dynastic era, and this episode is about explaining what that means and why that is. Let me try and get a little more specific. By now you know that this historical material all comes from an oral tradition, and so you expect narrations which depict the transmitter in a favorable light, and more often than not narrations which feature dramatic scenes, clever poetry, or larger-than-life personalities. You know, something memorable worth telling the kids about. None of those boring factoids which you'd have to write down to remember, like demographics, finances, or even dates. We also discussed some of the pitfalls of this oral history, like how these histories are less reliable as accurate records of the past, and instead are more useful for informing us about the stances different groups took with regards to certain events. We've stressed this enough already, and it's just a fancy way of saying that the Arabs passed their histories down from one generation to another by telling their stories. Narrations about the Prophet were especially important. As God's messenger, his words and deeds were considered by many to be a part of God's message to mankind. Of course, with great demand comes great supply, and it makes sense that within a few years, thousands of stories were being told about Muhammad. These stories were so popular that some went about memorizing all they could, and within a few decades of Muhammad's death, a companion who had spent only around three years with the Prophet was credited with relaying over 5,000 stories about him. Contrast this with the rightly guided caliphs. The four men who had a front-row seat to pretty much all of Muhammad's career as prophet couldn't scrounge up even a thousand tales about the man they'd followed. In our sources, we also find stories that hint at the abundance of narrations on Muhammad. Abdullah ibn Zubayr once asked his father why he never spoke about Muhammad when he was so close to him, while others who barely knew the prophet always had something to say about his ways or deeds, no matter the context. Al-Zubayr's reply gave his son both an answer and a story about the prophet. He said he remembered Muhammad once saying that anyone who told a lie about him would burn in hell forever. These examples are just to show that there was already plenty of fake news about Muhammad mere years after he had passed away. Stories about the Prophet weren't just important for moral and religious instruction, however. They quickly gained legal weight as judges began using them as a secondary source of jurisprudence, the first being the Qur'an, of course. A kind of science or field of studies called hadith 
was developed by the Arabs to cull the unwieldy cacophony of purported testimony which had developed over the years, and it involved a close inspection of the Prophet's entire generation. This effort to make sure that the oral testimony about the Prophet was as accurate as it could get is the major reason why reading the pre-dynastic era feels so different in Arab history. All that scholarship had a noticeable impact on the otherwise oral histories, and it grounded them in ways that made them broadly intelligible across one another. Another reason the pre-dynastic material is different from the rest of it is the one-off unity the period engendered in the Ummah. One of the best-known quips about history is that it is written by the victor, and when the Arabs were united they were all the victor, and they could only disagree on relatively minor details. As the community splintered, the stories told by its different branches rapidly diverged. During our discussion of Muawiyah's rise to power, I tried to bring him out as ambivalently as he was portrayed in the sources. Capable, wily, full of foresight, but also power-hungry, cowardly, and shameless in his quest for control. A sharp contrast for a controversial figure. His repeated and creative use of propaganda during his long conflict with Adib and Abi Talib meant that he understood its power, and so we shouldn't be surprised when he did all that he could to improve his image during his reign. The earliest histories written by the Arabs began during the Umayyad dynasty he founded. Sadly, however, these did not quite make it to our times. Subsequent dynasties discredited or outright destroyed the works of their predecessors, and they wrote new ones which cast things in a different light and overlapped with the oral histories still being transmitted by the overwhelmingly illiterate people. Now that we are out of the quasi-sacred era of the rightly guided caliphs, we need to be more vigilant about where we get our stories from. Narrations we hear could be genuine oral testimony, fake oral testimony, summaries of lost works heard about second or third hand, freshly crafted state propaganda, or one of many other possibilities. Okay, I don't want to lose you in all these details. I want us to stay focused on what we need to get out of this discussion. A better understanding of our sources. By our sources, I mean the three main ones I name from time to time, Al-Yaqubi, Al-Mas'udi, and Al-Tabari. These number among the oldest and most respected on the subject, and so we are in great hands. While these three were fascinating men in their own right, they weren't caliphs, and so we will keep our discussion of them down to a minimum. They lived between the mid-9th and 10th centuries, under the dynasty which succeeded the Umayyads. This didn't necessarily prejudice their works, and indeed they are respected because their writings seem to contain relatively little bias. Al-Yaqubi is sometimes referred to as pro-Hashemite, but I don't see it yet. His accounts of Uthman were some of the most sympathetic ones I had come across. However, as these men lived and wrote after the fall of the Umayyads, their works sometimes rely on surviving fragments of histories from the first dynasty, in others on official propaganda from the era in which they lived, which often denounced its Umayyad predecessors, and in others still on one of the many other sources that I listed earlier. It's just something that from now on we will need to keep an eye out for. Yaqubi and Mas'udi had a lot in common, although they lived about a century apart. Al-Mas'udi was born the year Al-Yaqubi died, a little before 900 AD. Apart from that, they were both born in Baghdad, they both died in Egypt, they were both considered historians and geographers because they wrote about both subjects, and Al-Mas'udi's works are so informative and entertaining that they earned him the weighty moniker Herodotus of the Arabs. Most importantly for our purposes, both Mas'udi and Yaqubi rendered their histories in a single coherent narrative. This just leaves Al-Tabari, and his work is an entirely different animal. 
He lived in a time between these two other historians, overlapping with them both, and he completed his encyclopedic history around 920 AD. The way Al-Tabari saw it, there were two kinds of stories about the past, those about the Prophet and everything else. The ones about the Prophet, well, Hadith science took care of those, and clearly there was to be no confusion over what was said so that the stories could be reliably used in court. Everything else, however, all the contradictory stories about the events that transpired, well, he wrote it all down. I like to think it was because he thought it would help us find the truth of the matter, but it's more likely that he felt it wasn't his place to sit and pick between them, or even that he didn't think it was worth the effort. Who knows? Ultimately, Al-Tabari transcribed every narrative he came across, and the rich, eccentric bachelor is said to have filled 40 pages a day every day of his life in order to achieve this. This makes Al-Tabari's book by far the biggest of the bunch. While Al-Yaqubi's history clocks in at about 100,000 words, Al-Tabari has over a million just covering the same period. That's right, you could fit over 10 Yaqubi histories in Al-Tabari's mammoth work. And I'm just talking about the period that we're interested in, starting with the death of the Prophet. To round things out, Al-Masoudi is about 400,000, but half of its geography, so it's more like 200,000. Twice Yaqubi, but just a fifth of Al-Tabari's comprehensive history. This is why I often mention Al-Tabari, but rarely are other two sources. There isn't a take on things that they can give which isn't already included in one of Al-Tabari's multiple narrations on the subject one way or another. I use the other two sources as maps to help me navigate the labyrinth of testimony that is Al-Tabari's magnum opus. Going through multiple narrations that don't agree with each other may sound like a lot, but the value of Al-Tabari really shines from time to time. And the whole episode of arbitration between Adia and Muawiyah gives us an instructive example of this. If you recall, I mentioned two meetings between Amr and Abu Musa, the first that the Syrians had with representatives from the Iraqis present, and the second with the Arabs of Mecca and Medina. While Al-Mas'udi, Al-Yaqubi, and the vast majority of sources I've come across all mention only a single meeting, and in that one meeting is a confused heap of everything which transpired at both events. This is precisely the type of data loss you can expect from oral histories. In them, similar events are often conflated or combined, and the same happens with sieges, conquests, you name it. It is only thanks to Al-Tabari's cataloging of all the oral testimony that we can make more sense of this confusing period by positing two separate meetings with events unfolding in a more reasonable sequence. Finally, because he relayed everything which had been passed down, Al-Tabari reported many narrations in which he must have had little to no faith. To make sure readers understood that he wasn't endorsing all the conflicting material, he included this nifty disclaimer which I wanted to share with you. It goes, quote, Whatever news in my book a reader denounces, or a listener shirks away from due to its not being known for its veracity, nor its lending meaning to the truth, know that it did not come from us, but from those before us, and we only transmit as they have done, end quote. I like how it both distances the writer from any of the opinions he passes on, and also reminds readers that any stories they find hard to believe are older than both audience and author. Al-Tabari's flexible approach to the truth of these matters made him an exceptionally popular resource for other histories, as multiple worlds can and indeed have been reimagined by picking and choosing from his many accounts. For the show thus far, I've used plenty more resources than just these three, but that's only because there is so much material on the Prophet's pre-dynastic generation. 
Maybe it's a bit counterintuitive, but the further back in history an event was, the more the Arabs had to say about it. If that doesn't quite make sense, think of it this way. The longer ago an important event had taken place, the more time there was for people to disagree about it and retell its stories in ways that proved them right. So the variety in oral testimony regarding a single event tended to grow with time. It occurred to me to try and graph this, and you can see from the only image associated with this episode how many words Al-Tabari dedicated to each discrete, i.e. non-rolling, five-year span. The methodology is admittedly a bit crude, but it's enough to show a clear negative trend over time, with spikes every so often marking especially controversial or eventful periods. The first spike you see is the expansion of the caliphate under Omar, and the second told about the charged years of the first fitna. I haven't relayed everything I found in the sources, of course. We'd never get done if that were the case. Apart from redundant or biased testimony, I've kept out anything with prophecies, miracles, or superpowers. You'd be forgiven for thinking that the Arabs ascribed those incredible boons to their prophet, but you would be wrong. It's his companions who get most of them. Maybe that's a result of the serious work that went into making sure stories about the prophet were accurate, or an expression of the sentiment voiced in Al-Zubair's warnings against lying about the prophet. I'm not saying that we know the absolute truth about the Prophet, just that more effort was made to keep things straight. Today, it's not uncommon for my fellow Muslims to believe the Prophet was a perfect human being, and a small minority go even further by ascribing a superhuman purity to him. For most, all that means is that Muhammad was free of malice or ill will. For some, the purity encompasses more than just his intent, and a small minority believe that the Prophet never sneezed, yawned, itched, nor experienced any sort of bodily discomforts one could characterize as involuntary. A vanishingly small minority take things even further, claiming that the Prophet had no need for sleep, ingesting nor digesting food, bodily fluids like blood, sweat, tears, etc. You see what's going on, right? I'm not here to change anyone's beliefs, but in my experience, exaggerated or fantastical claims like these are typically made as a misguided show of fealty. It's a kind of twisted logic, like the more unreasonable the thing you believe, the more impressive your faith in it becomes. But like I said, a lot of this came much, much later, and in our sources, it's the rightly guided caliphs who get credited with the coolest miracles. I'll only share my favorite, this one about the second caliph, Omar ibn al-Khattab. The gist of it is that after conquering Egypt, Amr ibn al-As stopped the locals from performing a religious ceremony in which pharaonic priests were about to sacrifice a virgin to the Nile by throwing her in. The holy men complained that if they did not do this, the river would cease to flow and disease would spread from its banks. Worried, the governor wrote back to the caliph, who sent him two letters in response, the first congratulating the governor on doing the right thing by stopping the sacrifice, with instructions to throw the second letter into the river which by now, we are told, had actually come to a complete halt. The second letter read, quote, From Omar ibn al-Khattab, commander of the faithful to the Nile of Egypt. If you cannot flow because of some ailment, then pray to the Almighty and he shall return you to your natural state. If, however, this is something you have chosen, then in the name of our Lord and Creator, I command you to loose your waters. Amr tossed this letter into the Nile, and wouldn't you know it, it has not stopped flowing since. Pretty cool, yeah? There's another one where he telepathically warns his armies of an ambush, saving their lives and winning the battle, but let's not fall too far down this amusing rabbit hole. Omar's reputation is over the top, 
and to me it's clear that it shines especially bright because of how badly his successor did. Don't get me wrong, Omar did really, really well, but the fact that his rule was the high point of this early pre-dynastic caliphate means that he gets remembered in all sorts of positive ways that had little to do with his actual historical personage. Here's an anecdotal example. A couple years ago, a school friend of mine shared this feel-good story about Omar on Facebook. That some desperate Arab had stolen his ring and ran away while he was at prayer, and so the caliph chased after him, yelling, Stop! I just want to forgive you, so that God won't punish any of my people. I mean, what a guy, right? But according to over a dozen narrations I've come across, Omar liked to walk around Medina and police it himself, and he always carried with him a stick to personally discipline those who committed even the smallest infraction. There's even an adage which goes, Omar's stick disciplines better than the sultan's sword. But since my friend's story basically boils down to Omar amazing, nobody really gave it a second thought. Anyway, I think we've said enough about the pitfalls of oral narrations, the sources that transmitted them to us, and how the Arabs used and abused their own histories. It's time for us to move on to the second part of this episode, in which I want to focus on the relationship between politics and religion within the Caliphate so far. You know I have no desire to wade into religious debate, but this podcast is about the political power of the Arabs, and how it swelled and receded, and religion is obviously an all-important factor in this journey. There's only one place to start, all the way at the beginning with the Prophet himself. Unlike other religious figures, Muhammad ruled and led his community, giving him a political position as well. Now, some people are understandably put off by such a statement, feeling that it somehow relegates the Prophet's importance or reduces his contributions to some Machiavellian gambit for supremacy among the Bedouin Arabs, but that's not where I'm going with this. I just want to point out that Muhammad's unique position as both prophet and leader united the political and the religious in a way none of his successors ever could nor claimed to. So for example, when Muhammad chose to ransom most of the Qurayshis his army had captured after their victory at Badr and put to death some of those most implacably opposed to him, nobody asked him whether it was a political or religious distinction which sent these groups to their different fates. When he agreed to change his signature from the Prophet Muhammad to Muhammad son of Abdullah to appease the Quraysh during the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, nobody accused him of denying his divinely ordained role. For obvious reasons, the Prophet's behavior was beyond reproach, religiously speaking, and this meant there was never any tension between his role as leader and his role as Prophet. Now for the next few minutes, I'm going to rely on the work of sociologist Dr. Ali Al-Wardi. And he uses the practical and the ideal as stand-ins for the political and the religious, but otherwise it fits in seamlessly with what we've been saying. After the Prophet, the leaders of the Ummah often had to make hard choices and practical decisions, and the first two did a good job of minimizing the tension between their policies and what would have been considered ideal. It was easier for Abu Bakr as daily life hadn't changed much in the two years he was in charge, but the Caliphate became extravagantly wealthy under Omar, and we already noted how his policy changes appealed to the ideal by aiming to help the Ummah adapt to its incredible success while keeping it true to the ways of the Prophet. Dr. Wardi focuses on Omar's redistribution of wealth, as his giving the most to those who had served the Ummah longest is a good example of a change which was practical, yet appealed to the ideal. Uthman's reign is controversial. 
But Dr. Wardi notes that the third caliph at times batted away complaints about his free use of the treasury by saying that his predecessor had reshaped it as he saw fit and he was only following his example. By reasoning that he could do what he liked because his predecessor had as well, he highlighted the practical aspects of power while neglecting the ideal. This tension between the practical and the ideal grew too strong under Uthman and it led to his tragic end an end which clearly demonstrated that the Ummah believed their caliph had to meet a certain religious standard, that the title successor to the Prophet didn't confer religious legitimacy, but was a claim to it, a promise which ought to be fulfilled through just governance and leadership. Dr. Wardi is just one of many esteemed minds, among them the venerated Ibn Khaldun, to see in Ali's rise to leadership an attempt to create a more idealistic social paradigm, what you even could argue was an entirely different caliphate. For example, Dr. Madling, one of our many sources for this early pre-dynastic period, titled his chapter on the fourth caliph the counter-caliphate of Ali bin Abi Talib. According to his valuable work on the subject, under its first two caliphs, the structure of the caliphate mirrored that of a classic tribal confederation, with Quraysh on top uniting other tribes beneath them. It was all still very tribal. Quraysh married into the noblest clans of the strongest tribes, and the weaker ones pledged their loyalties to Quraysh or one of its many new allies. Then under Uthman, the top rung of leadership became further restricted to just the Umayyad clan. Things also got increasingly tribal as the caliph tied his clan to the biggest, strongest, and most influential leaders he could find. Although Quraysh still wielded great influence, they agitated against the man who now excluded them from political power, tacitly or directly giving license to the masses to rebel against him. Everything since the death of the Prophet was a far cry from the caliphate which Ali envisioned, one united under the Hashemite clan, whose head would work to ensure the precepts of Islam were followed wholly and faithfully by all. In Ali's world, a tribal leader, a camel herd, a merchant, a slave, these were all only as good as their devotion to God. They could expect nothing more from their caliph than the application of the teachings of their Prophet and perhaps a moral religious model to aspire to. As far as Ali was concerned, Islam had already shown it was capable of triumphing over the tribal world once before during the Prophet's lifetime. And instead of compromising with it now, Ali wanted to fully apply all his cousin's teachings to vanquish the tribal instincts of his people for good. This egalitarian vision contrasted sharply with the future Muawiyah presented to his people. His main concern being the practical pursuit of power, he wrote to tribal chiefs with promises of wealth and prestige, and clearly they in turn had self-serving reasons for lending him their support. These tribal leaders also succeeded at keeping their men loyal to them, and so the Umayyad ended up with a sizable chunk of the Arabs on his side. Instead of trying to inspire them into becoming something they were not, Muawiyah read the room, and he offered the people what they really wanted a leader who would honor the old tribal ways just as much as he would the new faith. If his behavior left anything to be desired, religiously speaking, then his lineage and close kinship to the Prophet would more than suffice as far as most Arabs were concerned. I think I've already provided enough instances of Ali making idealistic choices and Muawiyah going for the politically expedient to make this discussion meaningful to listeners. There are plenty of examples of such behavior in the sources, and Dr. Wardi lists many of them in his work on the subject. Reflecting on the history of the caliphate, he concludes that the practical usually ends up in charge because leadership is, at heart, a practical matter. 
an endeavor which requires flexibility and compromise, both judicial and moral. Idealism, on the other hand, which refuses to bend to hard choices, typically shuns authority and flourishes in the opposition, with those critiquing government or speaking truth to power and its imperfect agents. Dr. Wardi paints a convincing picture, especially in light of how these dynamics will continue to play out. Ali and his defeated cause will become a symbol for much of the opposition to the Umayyad dynasty, and although its proponents will change over and again, the split will endure long enough that sectarian differences begin to emerge two to three centuries down the line. That political and religious authority weren't one and the same should not shock us. There were already hints that the role of the caliph did not include any actual religious authority even before Uthman's reign proved it beyond all doubt. While it's true that Abu Bakr did sometimes wield religious influence, he only ever did so by citing the Prophet's precedent. So it never stemmed from his position as caliph, but from his own personal history with the man he'd followed closer than most. People were eager to hear what he had to tell them about their prophet, but when faced with a moral conundrum or religious squabble, they would go to men they found to have deeper knowledge of the Qur'an and the Prophet's message. While these men weren't a religious power in the sense that they could issue new revelations or anything like that, the judges were the cream of the learned laity, and their ranks would evolve into Islam's clergy, the ulama, which literally translates into the ones with knowledge. I've already mentioned how Ali was a prominent judge in the capital of the Ummah, and I've repeatedly noted how he comes off more as a preacher than a politician. Remember my early characterization of the Hashemite and Umayyad clans as sort of Quraysh's priestly and patrician clans, respectively? Well, regardless what you believe about the Prophet designating a successor after his final pilgrimage, the Hashemite Ali bin Abi Talib was very much Muhammad's successor when it came to filling the non-prophetic aspects of his religious role within the Ummah a role we will find reprised by Hashemite after Hashemite as we cover more Arab history. Finally, before wrapping up for the day, I just wanted to say something quick about the Karajites, as they give us yet another perspective on the separation between the religious and the political in the Caliphate thus far. These seceders left the Ummah willingly, which in the eyes of some Muslims makes them infidels. There was still plenty about them that was Muslim, however, and their rebellion was clearly wholly political. They still prayed and fasted and all that. It's true that their spilling of lots of Muslim blood was a practice prohibited by the Prophet, but everyone was doing it back then. They literally left the Ummah after its bloodiest civil war. Anyway, they respected the sanctity of Muslim blood during the pilgrimage, which again was a Muslim thing to do. What I'm trying to say is that there was no indisputable way for deciding what actions or beliefs disbarred an Arab from the faith he claimed to hold. This question will actually become a huge deal, spawning multiple schools of thought, one of them being the Karajite school. So, in conclusion, the political and the religious were once one and the same thing, but after years of civil strife, the Arabs now knew better than to expect their caliph to be a paragon of virtue. We'll still find narrations which claim religious legitimacy for the caliphs as we move into the dynastic age, but they will never amount to more than fawning praise in religious garb. No, the power of the caliphs from here on out will rest firmly upon the practical matters of tribal politics. And we'll delve into this new era together, here on the caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. Music